I do believe if you're genuinely passionate about mm. any topic that you work on, and you can contextualize that for why the public should care, that you can get that traction as well. It is harder. I will freely admit it's very easy to get people excited about the Tassie Tiger, but it's possible and I've done it for different topics. You're listening to Amplifying Research. This is a podcast that's all about the different ways that effective engagement and communication can support the amazing research that's happening in the world. I'm your host, Chris Parlow. Okay, so the true story is I've been a filmmaker for 15 plus years. And as I got older, I got more and more interested in telling stories about the big problems in the world, the stuff that was keeping me up at night. And alongside working as a professional screenwriter and director, I had the fortune to connect with some really, really amazing researchers who wanted help telling their stories. And so now this has become my mission to help make sure this incredible work gets out there and generates that real world impact. So how are we going to do that? Well, I'm fortunate enough to have connections with some incredible science communicators, amazing researchers who've been on the radio and on television, comedians, actors, directors, people you wouldn't expect on a podcast like this. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring them here and we're going to do deep dives into how you can take some of the best thought leadership out there and employ it in your own research, engagement, and communications. In today's episode, I do a deep dive with Professor Andrew Pask. He's the, uh, he's the thylacine guy. He's head of the Tiger Lab at the University of Melbourne, and he's already raised around $40 million to support his lab's work to de-extinct the thylacine. Now, um, you may be a bit surprised to hear that I actually met Andrew at a comedy show. I think this is a great example of the commitment he shows to science, comms and engagement. He was a guest at a science-inspired comedy show here in Melbourne. And that's just one of the many engagement activities he's done. You've probably heard him on the radio. You might have read him in news outlets like the ABC or Sydney Morning Herald. He's done it all. It's a great conversation. So stay tuned, friends. Professor Andrew Pask, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Now, your work has generated a lot of attention, and I've heard you're very passionate about public engagement. Let's start by talking about fundraising, because you've attracted an enormous amount of funding to your research project, and I'm sure the researchers out there want to know how you did it. Yeah, I guess, like, I never actively went out to try and say, you know, I need money to drive this particular research objective. The funny thing is, the work on the Tasmanian Tiger, which is what you know, we're talking about today and has mm. become the major focus of my research program was always my side hustle in the lab. And I think a lot of people that run research programs have passion projects that are perhaps quite difficult to attract major funding for mm. that you're kind of constantly driving in the background. And that really was all of the work I've ever done on the, the Tassie Tiger. It was only in more recent times in the last decade that I got a couple of ARC grants to help kind of kick some of this stuff off and uh, also then received philanthropy and then big biotech investment in really driving this forward. But my strategy always was, I love science communication, I love the outreach, and I really love this project because of the importance that it has for marsupial conservation biology, for educating the public around novel ways of, of addressing some of the big crises that we're in, and really opening their eyes to, you know, what are the possibilities that we can do in this particular realm. And it gets people really excited about mm. science. They all love this topic. They love the idea and the concept of what we're doing. So it's a great mechanism for engagement. So I did a ton of engagement. Mm. So whenever there was opportunities, you know, I wrote pieces for The Conversation. I wrote pieces for Pursuit, which is the University of Melbourne, sort of outward facing uh, interaction with the community about what we're doing in science. I did, you know, podcasts. I've done all of the things that I can to try and communicate about the research and why I think it's really important. And then that eventually led to uh, a really amazing individual who wanted to support this work, uh, just giving me some, some, you know, incredible amount of philanthropy to be able to drive this project forward. And one of the things is, you know, we, it's very difficult in Australia to propose a really big blue sky project. Mm. We obviously have very limited funding in science. And so we have to always be thinking about what are the most effective ways to spend that money. And that's, that's rightly so. Um, and I think, you know, for me to propose to do something as big and blue sky as saying, I'm going to bring a thylacine back from the dead, I'm going to de-extinct an animal, you have to have a significant amount of investment. Otherwise, you sound like a, a, a nutcase if you're going to propose to do that that's and right. you've got no money to do it. 
And so getting that philanthropy was the first time that it enabled me to actually say, we're actively working towards that goal. Our endpoint for this is going to be, we want to bring the Tasmanian tiger back. We've got a real amount of capital to help drive that research goal forward. And, you know, that was when the other funding then ended up coming to the project was because, you know, that went viral across the world Mm. that we were stating it for the first time. It got picked up by every news service you can imagine. And, you know, then I did even more science comms about it. And I think it was just getting my name out there that people could see that I was the person to talk to about this is really what that transformative difference was. But I spent a lot of time doing these communication things mm-hmm. and wondering if there ever would be any benefit from it, any direct benefit to me. I did love doing the science comms. I love getting that next generation of people excited in science, you know, and I, I fully, uh, you know, agree that this is a very easy topic to engage people mm. in, which makes it a lot easier as well, is that everybody has an opinion on this, regardless of their science background. So it is a very immediately engaging topic to talk about. I mean, everyone's seen Jurassic Park, right? Yeah. And, you know, people always say that to me. That's one of the first things people always say is, you know, oh, well, we've all seen Jurassic Park. And, you know, and then people say to me, oh, you must hate it all the time, the reference to Jurassic Park. (laughs) I actually, I don't hate it. You know, I think it is everybody's introduction to the extinction science. Mm. It's amazing that Mr. DNA Strand, when he pops out and he talks about how that process works, it's not that different to what we're actually doing. I mean, it is different. And obviously Jurassic Park made some fundamental flaws, which we can yeah, go into if yeah. you want. <laughs> but it's, it's, the concept is the same, is that you can't create life where there is none. You have to engineer a living thing back from something that's already existing and living. So this is where the controversy really lies, because it is different to cloning. You're basically engineering an animal back into existence mm. as opposed to just, you know, reawakening that cell or generating a whole individual from a living cell. You have to get to that cell stage. You have to be able to engineer that part. So obviously that raises, rightly so, controversies. And then, you know, that's where I'm very open to discussing exactly what I believe the ramifications and implications are of that work. Beautiful. Okay, well, we definitely want to get to the controversies in a moment, but there's so much in what you said already. I'd love to zoom in on the details and help the listeners really kind of understand the different stages of your journey because... If I've understood you correctly, it sounds like bringing the thylacine back was a passion project, something yep. you were doing as a side hustle. Yep. Then you got that initial philanthropic donation, which was $5 million or thereabouts. Yeah, it was, yeah. And now you've kind of built momentum and you're up somewhere towards $40 million. So that's quite a journey. Yep. Let's focus on that side hustle period. Yeah. My first postdoc was uh, in a massive cancer hospital in America. So I'm a, you know, developmental biologist by training. My background was all in marsupial evolutionary biology and really trying to understand the marsupial genome and how it compares to uh, a placental mammal genome, so the other big group of mammals. That's what I did my PhD in. This was a long time ago. We're talking 25 years ago now. So genomics was not a thing Mm. back then. So it was pre-genomics era. And then my first postdoc, I was thinking about how can I establish a career? You know, what's going to give me that background that's really going to help me have a career in science because I loved the science and the bench work so much. And so I was thinking, you know, obviously cancer biology is a huge area. There's lots of funding for cancer biology. There's a real need for solutions in that space. So I went and worked at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Texas to to get that experience. It's just be like, what's it like working in the cancer field? So when I went over there, uh, the lab I went into was a lab that was modeling cancers in mice. So they were making a lot of transgenic mice and manipulating mouse genomes. And again, back 25 years ago, that was like cutting edge. That was like, the, you know, the pinnacle because it was not routine for people to make transgenic mice or knockouts mm. or be able to observe gene functions in that way. And so we were doing it. And because we were on the cutting edge of that technology, I was talking to the, the boss of the lab, Richard Berenger. He's an amazing developmental biologist. And just saying to him, you know, can we use this technology to see how we can push boundaries? You know, I love this animal called the Tasmanian tiger that's extinct, but we've got DNA from it. You know, I did some of that work in my PhD and here at the University of Melbourne in a postdoc. And I was like, you know, I've got that DNA. Maybe we can try and make a transgenic mouse with a thylacine gene and see if you can actually resurrect the function of a fragment of the genome. So this was back in like 2002 and we did it and it worked. So the piece of DNA functioned and we were able to get a functional readout for that. And so we published that paper and that was the first time any fragment of DNA had ever been resurrected in an animal before. Like this was the first 
demonstration of that. And then from that, you know, obviously I was like, you know, I'm going to keep pursuing this mm. forever because if you can do it for one tiny fragment, you can clearly do it for a whole genome. It's just a matter of scale, sure. ridiculous scale, sure. albeit, you know, because it's three billion base pairs large, but still I'm going, you know, this is an achievable thing that I'm going to constantly be doing. So I was always, you know, getting my, my work done for what I was actually paid to do on my postdocs and other things, but always had this stuff working in the background. And across my whole career, there's just been sporadic publications on Tasmanian tiger stuff that I was just doing as, as a side thing when I could get people excited about following some of those, those things with me. And I always had amazing students and people in the lab that also loved that research objective and wanted to push those boundaries with me that, you know, would, would dedicate their PhDs or whatever to pushing that science forward. So when we finally published the entire genome of the Tasmanian tiger, which was 2018, uh, that was entirely driven by a, a PhD student's project. So again, you know, I didn't have direct funding for that. I didn't have a grant to do that work, but I had a student who's like, I, you know, I love the idea of bringing animals back and how far can we push genomics and genetic technologies to do this. And so he dedicated his PhD to do it and he got a first author nature ecology evolution paper out of it. Beautiful. So it was bloody nice. So yeah. Beautiful. But yeah, it's, you know, one of those things that probably my, well, definitely the majority of my funding comes for that project, but mm. the most transformative publications across my career have been related to that topic, but I was never able to directly fund that topic. So when I talk to people about career path and stuff, I'm like, I think there's real validity in following still those passion projects when you can and just keep on, there's something you really care about. Just keep on mm. pushing those goals whenever you can. And then, you know, I realize that I am an incredibly lucky and fortunate scientist to have the support that I have. So I don't by all means think this is going to happen for everyone, but I think there are chances with some of these topics that that can really pay off in the long run. I'm kind of getting um, deja vu a little bit listening to your story. It's reminding me a lot about how things often are in the film industry. You mentioned earlier you were going out and doing all this public engagement and research communications, and you weren't quite sure, is any of this going to pay off? But you yeah. believed in the project. You yeah. had that passion. And you, it sounds almost like you kind of just had to have a bit of faith that yeah. it's going to pay off. Definitely had to have the faith. Yeah. Amazing. And it did. <laughs> it did. It did. <laughs> yeah. And I think, look, yeah. I think it's great that you've acknowledged not every research project has the potential to follow the journey that yeah. you followed. How critical do you think that area of passion was in determining the success? Like if you wanted to bring back, I don't know, what's a really uncool animal? Yeah. Well, people are working on bringing the passenger pigeon back, <laughs> right? And I'm always like, oh, Is that true? Man. Yeah, true. Okay. Like it's really unenigmatic, the passenger pigeon. I mean, it's just a really drab looking brown <laughs> other pigeon, a sky rat, if you will. Uh, so, who, you know, who gets it out of bed in the morning and thinks I want to bring back another pigeon? Yeah. So they were incredibly important for the ecosystem in North America right. and they existed in flocks of millions. Wow. So it was really an incredible uh, and very important species and they played a lot of different roles in the ecosystem. And I think that is my primary passion behind bringing the Tasmanian mm. tiger back is it's not about a Jurassic Park moment of we've brought something back from the dead. Isn't that cool? Now we can put them into zoos or, you know, or create a, you know, a Tasmania park that people can go and have a look at these animals in. It's about actually being able to put that animal back in the wild to restabilize those ecosystems. Yeah. And it's about my real passion for trying to put a stop on the loss of biodiversity that we have on the planet, which we know is deplorable. But then saying, you know, we, we do have the technologies now, not just to stop any other species from going extinct. We know what we need to do there, but also to reverse those biodiversity losses and to turn back the clock and to bring back some of the species that we know were incredibly important for particular ecosystems and then replacing those back into that ecosystem. So that's where I love this because everybody's drawn in by the Jurassic Park element of de-extincting something, but it provides an opportunity for me to go, these animals were really important and unique in our ecosystem. Australia is a really unique place. You know, we don't have any other apex predatory mammals. This was the only one we ever had that was a native mammal, which is mind-blowing. If you think of North America, they've got bears and big cats and wolves and all sorts of things that act in that apex predator role. If you come to Australia, we have none. The mm. only one we had was the Tassie tiger, and then we brutally hunted it to extinction and then left a massive gap in the ecosystem, and now that ecosystem is collapsing. So this is one of those things where that hook of people 
being interested in de-extinction science can then educate them about the plight of the Australian ecosystem, the need to replace some of these animals in that ecosystem, and the importance of conservation biology to stop any further animals from becoming lost because, you know, we don't understand enough about how they work and how those, those complex systems all interact. So that's what I love about the project is really, you know, and it was really driven by the passion for educating people around that, that so many people mm. got really interested in the whole project. And I think, you know, it has the ripple effect of hopefully really educating the public more about genetically modified animals, about what we're doing to the environment, about why we don't want to have to go down this pathway mm. of de-extinction science if we don't have to. So hopefully being more responsible custodians of our environment so that we don't have to repeatedly do this. Beautiful. I think it's a really interesting comparison looking at the work that you're doing with the Tiger Lab and the folks who are trying to bring back the passenger pigeon. Yep. Now, I imagine they're just as passionate as you are. They are, definitely. And they yep. may be wanting to bring this animal back for very similar reasons yep. um, that you want to bring the thylacine back. But as you say, the passenger pigeon is not an enigmatic yep. animal. I think perhaps a lesson listeners can take from this is not to be discouraged if you don't have an area of research that is inherently exciting. I think it's important to be realistic and understanding your audience and what interests them and how they yeah. need to be engaged with is key. And so if your passion is to bring back the passenger pigeon, um, just understand what are the implications of that. It doesn't mean that your work isn't important, but the way you communicate about that work and perhaps the size of the group you're going to be communicating to yeah. may be different than yep. if you're bringing back the thylacine or the woolly mammoth. Yeah. And I think, you know, in Australia, we we know what the Tasmanian tiger is and we know it's this beautiful, incredible looking animal and that it was a marsupial. So it's even more unusual and unique and exciting. But in America, for example, they had no idea what mm. the Tasmanian tiger was. So I'd go over there and talk about the importance of the Tasmanian tiger and they're like, what's that? You know, where's Tasmania? And, you know, how does this fit into anything that we should care about? So it was very different, again, for those different audiences. Super easy to get people hooked in Australia. Mm. And then people were just really disinterested, like it was some weird, funny animal that we had in Australia that, you know, they'd never heard of before. And why is it so important? And I think through all the science comms that I have really seen over the last five years, it's actually blown my mind now that when I go to America and I talk about it, People actually know what the animal is from the work that I've done, wow. Colossal have done. Wow. And I think that is incredible to me that, that I go, I can't believe that people know this animal now, but it has become an icon for de-extinction biology. You know, it's been in lots of popular press, lots of, you know, media surrounding it. And I think, yeah, it's incredible to think that there has been that shift that people actually know it now. So, yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the next phase of the journey. So side hustle, you're writing for the conversation, you're going on podcasts. Yep. And it sounds like getting that first uh, big philanthropic donation was an inflection point. Was, yeah. was that from an Australian donor? Yeah, from an Australian donor. And so uh, he contacted me, it was during COVID lockdown actually, he just sent me an email just asking to talk to me about the research I was doing. And we had just like a very matter of fact conversation about what I was doing and where I was going. And, you know, we, I didn't know who he was or, you know, what, what the nature of the outcome of this conversation was going to be. We just had a really nice chat about it. He was a really nice bloke. Um, and he asked me, you know, why I hadn't said I'm going to bring back the Tasmanian tiger and what the roadblocks were to actually working on that project. And I talked to him about, you know, we have this funding situation in Australia. Our grants are only three years long. You know, you obviously can't bring back a Tassie tiger in three years. So it's not like you can mm. apply for a grant to say, I'm going to bring back a Tassie tiger because you're never going to get there. So you're trying to do little bits of it that have different outcomes and, you know, trying to, to, to build that thing. So I just said, you know, that takes time if you're trying to build up a big blue sky research project. And uh, that's when he's like, you know, how could I facilitate this? What sort of money would you need to do it? And so it was incredible. It was, and I've always said, like, it, the, he was really the person who's made all of this possible because it required somebody else to financially back the vision and to believe in the science that we were doing and the bigger picture of it for marsupial conservation biology to really put that investment in to then for me to be able to talk about it, like we said before, mm. to announce that this is what I'm going to do. And then, you know, it's one of those situations where once you're saying you're the person to do it, suddenly everybody becomes mm. interested and then it's a lot easier to get those other contracts to keep the research going. Okay. So how did you go from this first philanthropic donation to working with Colossal Biosciences? 
Yeah, so they actually reached out to me. So I, I've worked with one of the people who was on their, their board, uh, who's Beth Shapiro. She wrote the book, How to Clone a Mammoth. Yep. Uh, great read. Great, uh, you know, good, just science, easy reading, uh, good thing to, to do for your summer. Um, and it's actually a really good book. She's an amazing scientist from UC Santa Cruz um, who works in this space. And so she had spoken to Colossal and said, hey, we should probably talk to Andrew Pask. He's working on the Tasmanian Tiger Project. And so they flew me over to Dallas. And we sat down and had a conversation about the approaches that they were using for their mammoth project, the way that I was approaching the thylacine project. And they just were super complimentary. Like it was just a, an incredible meeting. We actually talked for three days nonstop about the science that we were doing and, and how we were doing it. It was really amazing, actually, because we were both of us were so open, the colossal side and, and me, about, you know, I was not holding anything back. You know, I want this technology to be available to the planet to, you know, bring back really important cornerstone species. And so I was just going, you know, here's, here's my challenges. Here's the things that I think we've got a really good handle on. And like I said, they, they really are super, super complementary. So with the thylacine project, uh, one of the things you have to do is identify the closest living relative to your extinct animal. Mm -hmm. And then you basically engineer that animal to turn it back into a thylacine. So the evolutionary distance between the thylacine and the, the closest living relative is quite large. So there's a lot of edits that have to be made to that genome to turn it back into a thylacine genome. With the mammoth and the Asian elephant, they're actually more closely related than an Asian elephant is to an African elephant. Oh, interesting. So they have a very close phylogenetic relationship, many, many less edits that need to be made. So they're, they're rocketing ahead on the genome editing side really quickly, that's a real, something that's going to take a long time for us to do for the thylacine. Completely possible. There's no magic involved in doing that. It's just a long slog to make all of those edits. Then when it comes to actually generating an animal, marsupials are incredible because they give birth to such tiny babies. Mm. A baby thylacine is about the size of a grain of rice. So really, really small. And it has a two-week gestation. And in that gestation of the baby, it doesn't actually have placental implantation into the mum. So it's something that's very easy for us to either grow in a test tube or transplant into a surrogate mum without it rejecting the baby. Uh, and if you compare that to a mammoth, they have a 22-month gestation and a one-ton baby at birth, right? So for us, the assisted reproductive technologies are quite easy in getting to that baby. Mm. For them, it was really difficult. So we had this beautiful complementary approach where we're kind of kicking goals and learning a lot about how we're going to generate whole animals from our eventual cell they're kicking goals on how they're going to edit the genome on a really high level and get to having that cell in the first place. And so by teaming up together, we're driving different aspects of the research forward and it really is truly complementary. So I think from their perspective, you know, it was a really natural uh, union for us to mm. come together to work on this. They're really leading the world when it comes to DNA editing technology. So to be able to leverage the advances that they've made for this project is incredible. And, uh, you know, I think we're really helping them out with a lot of the developmental biology side of things and understanding how you get to that animal as well. So, yeah, it's been great. And so I met with them, we had a conversation and then they said, you know, we really want to fund your research. So that led to an initial uh, uh, grant with them or, you know, some funding from them to, to start to really work cooperatively on the project. And then from that, it's just grown. We've, we've done more and more research contracts with them, looking at other aspects of developmental biology and where we can go with the extinction science. Beautiful. I mean, that sounds like a dream partnership yeah. on every level. Yep. And it sounds like your profile was really critical in making this match happen. Yeah, I think it was. And, you know, I think it was because I put myself out there so much. I do mm. a lot of talking about it. I kept on pushing the research along, obviously. But yeah, I do think that was a really key part to it. So it's a lot, you know, we always talk about work-life balance. Sure. And things, and it is another thing that you yeah. have to slap on top of everything else that you do. It's not an instead of thing, but it obviously had a massive payoff. So obviously in your case, you know, you were doing it on your own time, hustling hard. Would you like to see research centers, institutes, labs creating more opportunities for their team to go out and, and do these engagement activities? 
Absolutely. And I do think universities are moving more that way now. I think they have recognised that there is the potential there to get, you know, non-traditional forms of funding for all sorts of different research projects. And so when I first started doing this 20 years ago, you know, it was very hard for me to drive that outreach all the time. Now it is, it's not so hard. You know, we do have whole teams dedicated mm. to it at the University of Melbourne, for example, that will actually seek out opportunities for you to do that kind of work and liaise and getting you some, you know, really good spotlights to, to present your research in. So I do think things are moving more in that direction, but I do think as well, the more the researcher can push those things through things like the conversation, you know, I get involved in science week. I do that every year. Um, so I, I go out to schools, I grassroots type yeah. stuff, but I, I really believe in educating the public about all of these issues. And I think it all just builds and adds to more and more opportunities, more people reaching out. You know, you do a podcast like this and other people listen to it and they're like, actually, I'd love you to come and talk at a forum that we're putting together about how to attract funding for science or whatever. Like every single opportunity I think you take yeah. leads to more connections, more opportunities to do more. So I encourage people, don't wait for the university to contact you or to have somebody else say, hey, here's an opportunity. But I think you have to actively go out and look to, to drive that. Beautiful. I couldn't agree more. Now, you've become the guy. You're the thylacine guy, right? Yeah, it's kind of weird. So I've recorded a conversation with Professor Philip Dawson from Cradle at Deakin about yep. becoming a key person of influence, which I think is pretty much the same thing we're talking about. But you weren't the first key person of influence in this field. There was a previous thylacine guy, right? There was. What was it like dealing with that legacy? It was really interesting, actually. Mark Archer is an amazing uh, paleontologist. He's done some incredible transformative work in this space. And I really love his uh, whole idea of this, again, was really using this as a hook for people to start to appreciate that there is more value in museum collections than just having a stuffed thylacine there, that you have this potential to go back. There is nucleic acid in these specimens. You can think about what you might want to do with that, how you might want to understand the biology of an animal or even a complex ecosystem or anything, utilising that data. I think where it became an issue was because there was no genome outcome or anything from that. This was back maybe 10, 15 years ago that I think it was just then perceived by a lot of people as it just simply wasn't possible. Mm. But I think that at the time, there weren't the tools around to make it possible. There was no, nothing that I did that was transformative to make this work where it couldn't work before. It was just that we suddenly had the ability to sequence genomes. We had developed platforms that were particularly good at looking at fragmented, broken up DNA. And that's what you're dealing with from these museum specimens. And obviously we've had massive advances in the tools for genome editing. So it's just like, I'm sure if somebody was to come back and look at doing this project 20 years in the future, they'd be able to trump everything that I've done you know, now just sure. because of the tools and things that are available. So yeah, I think it was interesting moving into that space because people have said, oh, you know, we've heard all this before and nothing ever happens. Yeah. And I'm like, but clearly the landscape has changed. What we can do has changed. And I think that was a barrier perhaps to getting some of that, the funding to drive mm. this research. But then I just had to keep on pushing it as the side hustle. I had to believe in the mission. And then it wasn't until, you know, we published the genome. And then obviously that led to a lot of press and then, you know, like that's how that whole uh, sort of dominoes fell down, I guess, after that. So you've got to be able to show receipts. You have to be able to show receipts. Got yep. it. Okay. So don't be discouraged if uh, there's been skepticism in the past, but no. you've got to deliver the goods. Yeah. You do have to deliver the goods. Okay. Now, a moment ago, you talked about that, <laughs> frankly, I... It, it is incredible. The fact that people in America know what a thylacine is. Yeah. Absolutely amazing. Now, I believe the Hemsworth brothers are investors in Colossal Biosciences. Yeah. And I know Colossal have paid influencers to talk about yeah. their projects. Yeah. Would you credit Luke, Chris, and Liam Hemsworth to helping to popularize the thylacine <laughs> in America? Yeah, I think they probably did play a really major role in this, which is incredible. I think, you know, there is certainly an audience that you reach and a breadth of audience that you reach through engaging, you know, celebrities and influencers mm. and things that is not possible within the realm of a mere nerdy scientist as myself trying to tweet something or, you know, posting something on LinkedIn. It just sure. doesn't have the same gravitas, right, of people just going, oh, that's interesting, and then do, taking the time then to read about the research and what it actually means. You know, and I think the Hemsworths are really passionate about conservation biology. I just spent a weekend, a couple of weekends ago in Tasmania with Luke Hemsworth uh, you know, talking about some of the conservation goals that we have with this project. And they're just really, really passionate. They, they put a lot of effort into 
rescuing the Tasmanian devil. Um, the Tasmanian devil is going extinct because of this terrible facial tumor disease that wouldn't exist if you had the thylacine around still. Mm. So the reason that that's there is because you don't have a predator removing sick and wounded animals from the population. But going back to that that influ influencer uh, question before, I think this was something that was really interesting for me. Obviously, coming from that that nerdy science perspective into this realm of interacting with people like that, and you know, getting influencers paid to make tweets about bringing back the mammoth and the thylacine and other you know major projects that Colossal are doing. And then it was really interesting how the community really jumped on that and said, you know, this is really terrible. We shouldn't be doing this. You know, this mm. is not the great way to communicate these messages. But then, you know, Colossal really believe in this mission. And the founder of Colossal, Ben Lamb, who's this is absolutely phenomenal, larger than life entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur that's created these incredible companies. And he's just a real visionary. He was saying, you know, I hate this feeling of, a, of elitism that there is in science that, you know, that there could be some kid down the street who would never hear about the amazing importance of the research that we're doing because it's only published in cell science nature and they don't have access to those journals. And that's not the way that they interact with the world. Yeah. What they do is they watch TikTok and they're on, on Instagram and all of these things. And that there's a real fraction of society there that we want to reach and, and feel passionate about this as much as the people who are already engaged in science. It's about that, that breadth of reaching out to those people. And why would that ever be frowned upon? Like this is only spreading good word about science, about conservation, about why species are so important, and that that's actually incredibly valuable. And you might reach that kid who, you know, has a, you know, a, a different social economic background mm. that isn't thinking they could ever have the opportunity to go to university or isn't even passionate about anything in particular. And then they can see a story like this and be like, this is incredible. You know, like here's somebody that I watch as an influencer all the time now talking about conservation biology and de-extinction. And I want to dedicate my life to this. So I really love that side of it. And I love reaching this breadth of audience that I would never have been able to mm. do on my own, you know, on the platforms that I regularly engage with. Okay. So the listeners to this podcast, they may not have a connect to the Hemsworth brothers, but would right. you, you're going to introduce <laughs> okay. them. Yeah, okay, sure. okay great. Me up. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there are other people, other champions you may be able to find in your orbit, in your network. Yeah, absolutely. That can be really useful allies, right? Yep. And again, through, you know, science comms, uh, you know, I've had great opportunities like talking at South by Southwest, where you just connect again with an entire audience of people, people from different backgrounds, you know, from the entertainment industry that I would never normally connect with. I mean, you know, when I, I talk all the time at science conferences, but it's a different group of people. So I think pushing yourself out of those comfort zones, taking advantage of all of those opportunities when they come up to talk about your research and your science, even to audiences you wouldn't normally. Again, like I was saying before, I think it really just opens up those additional doorways to opportunities that you didn't know existed. And I think if you're as passionate as you are about the work and you're communicating that passion, you're going to connect to people who are also passionate and they're going to want to help you. Yeah, that's it. The people are out there and I think it's a matter of finding those people and connecting those people that is the, the real thing. And you, you can do that by trying to make yourself as, as he heard as you possibly can. You got to do it. Make yourself heard as you possibly can. Yep. We've talked a lot about the skepticism towards yep. projects like yours. Uh, it's, it's somewhat controversial. In an interview you did with Good Weekend, you said, when you get up to give a talk, sometimes 80% of the people in the audience think what you're doing is is wrong yep. and you managed to bring around a fairly high percentage of them by the yep. end. Let's dig into this. Let's dig into how do you deal with people critical and skeptical of your work? You know, I think as scientists, we are very well versed in this because almost every forum we put our work forward in leads to direct criticism. <laughs> Whether mm, we're publishing mm. a paper or putting in a grant application, it's always a constant critique. So we're kind of set up to deal with these critiques. But yeah, when you're talking to the public, it's no different. I think a lot of, you know, what I do is when I go in there is really about trying to dispel myths. I think one of the ways that I've really worked hard on this for the science comms perspective is I spend a lot of time really trying to understand what people's concerns are. This, this again was a, a while ago. I think people are much, have a much deeper appreciation of the biology now, but say five, 10 years ago, talking about de-extinction science, they were just going, it's impossible. You're diverting money away from real research objectives. That's not good you know, this is playing God, you're, you're messing in a space that we, we shouldn't be, you know, playing around in. 
And, you know, this is Jurassic Park and we all know how that ends. We're all going to get sure. in the live by thylacines and, you know. <laughs> so I now, whenever I talk about this in a public forum, I, I always address those concerns right up front. I go, here are the questions that I repeatedly get challenged or the, or the controversies that people constantly challenge me with. And I ask everybody in the audience, I just say, I'm not necessarily, you know, here to say you're wrong. I'm just going to say, just listen to what I have to tell you about why I believe this is such an important area of science. Don't close your mind because you're going to have a knee-jerk reaction to any one of those sorts of topics. Just hear me out and then make a decision about where you would like this technology mm. to go. So you're acknowledging upfront that's controversial and yep. that they're going to be sceptical. Yeah. And that I feel confident that I can dispel any of those controversies with people, right? You know, I feel like there's, there's real sound arguments against any one of those concerns. Yeah, I think it seems to, to resonate really well with people. And, you know, like I, I think I said in that article, I feel like 80% of people are with me as we walk out of the room. Like it may be 80% against initially. And then mm. I feel like I really mm. switched that audience because I, there's undeniably a real importance to preserve biodiversity, particularly in our country, uh, but also, of course, globally, um, and that we need to have de-extinction science as one of the tools in our conservation toolkit to bring back cornerstone species, these species that are absolutely critical for stabilizing particular ecosystems. And we have no other way of doing that. There's no other way that we can manage that ecosystem or intervene as humans to manage that the only way that you can save that ecosystem from collapse is to bring back some of these animals. So I think we just have to be really open-minded about where we want to set the limits on that technology and having that discussion, but not saying, no, we can't do it. One of my other massive you know, projects that we, we work on as part of this is the northern quoll. Again, a really beautiful, cute Australian animal. So something that does capture the hearts of people mm. because they are so beautiful. But I think it is important and strategic too when you're trying to make a big social change about something that it is going to be something that people are going to care about. You want to know your audience. You know, they don't love insects and, you know, other species that might be super important for the ecosystem or it's harder to get them to love them. I'm sure people do love insects and spiders and things, but it's much easier to get people to love a really cute, fluffy, you know, gorgeous, spotted little marsupial. And so with this one, uh, the quoll, the northern quoll is one of the species that is predicted to go extinct in the next decade because they eat cane toads. We all hate cane toads, introduced species here, poisonous. They eat the cane toad and they die of the cane toad toxin. But animals that have evolved alongside cane toads in countries where they normally exist um, have evolved cane toad toxin resistance. And it's just two amino acids that you need to change. Two letters of their entire three billion base pair genome can turn an animal from cane toad toxin sensitive or, or dying from cane toad toxin to completely cane-toxin resistant. And so there's a, you know, amazing collaborator I work with, Stephen Frankenberg, who, you know, has proposed that we are now, well, we're actually doing it. We're actually engineering a cane-toxin resistant quoll. And this is an incredible uh, opportunity here that we will not only save the quoll, but then the quoll can actually eat bloody mm. cane toads and help the, stop the cane toad spreading a scourge across our beautiful country. Um, and I also think this is a great way to, again, get public engagement in understanding that it's not ideal that we have to engineer our wildlife or create genetically modified versions of our wildlife to survive. But here is a situation where if we, if we don't intervene, if we do nothing, the northern quoll is going to go extinct. We can intervene, we can save the species very easily, and we can help also control the spread of cane toads. So, you know, this is one of those great projects, an ambassador project that I love to engage the public with just to say, you know, now how do we feel about this? You know, and, and are we going to be accepting of, of releasing an animal that's a genetically modified version of a quoll to changes to its genome? And these are changes that we know would naturally evolve over time if we had another 400 million years for the quoll to survive. But we don't. Mm. So we can accelerate that process, create the natural mutation that we know occurs in other species that have evolved that resistance, but how do we want to deal with this technology? What do people want to see? So I think really taking it head on has mm. been a good way of dealing with those controversies and really addressing them up front and providing very tangible examples, having mm. your receipts of like, okay, we can save this species. You're saying, no, you're playing God if you edit two bases in an animal's genome and we would rather that animal went extinct because we introduced the cane toad, right? We put it in a situation that's going to drive its extinction. One thing... 
I love in, in what you've just said is it's it's not just that you're giving examples, but they're powerful examples. The stakes are really, really high. Yep. And you're choosing examples that I think are going to resonate very easily with the audience. Like you said before, no one wants to see a beautiful spotted marsupial go extinct, right? Yep. You put it in terms that people, they're going to feel it in their gut when you talk yep. about it like that. And I think, you know, that if you then get the traction for that and the funding to do that work, that's where we then can fund it into the less enigmatic species, obviously. All sure. of those things get funded through driving something with with a vision that people are really going to get behind and care about. So I think thinking about that too, like you said before, really thinking about your audience and how you're going to capture people's imagination and then using that to do a greater good is really the way that things have to move. Now, you look pretty cool, calm and collected when you're talking about dealing with this kind of criticism. Not all my listeners may be at that point yet. They may be a little bit nervous. I imagine maybe when you're a little bit early in your career, you could have gotten flustered from time to time. Oh, yeah. Can you talk a bit about the journey of building that confidence and self-assuredness to, to deal with these things head on, as you say? Yeah, I think for me, it has only come through with age. I mean, I'm very old now, but of working in this field for a long time, I definitely was incredibly nervous about these sorts of questions early on. Mm. It's really confronting when you're in the media as well. So particularly my media engagements early on were really hard and uh, I didn't have any formal media training. You know, I kind of jumped straight into this this foray of, you know, I was doing live television crosses and all sorts of crazy stuff, you wow. know, around the science that I was doing without any media training and not realizing that, you know, a lot of, of people from the media, when they're asking you about a particular story, they already have very clearly in their mind a way that they want to tell the story and yeah, to write it. Yeah. And they have a narrative that they want from you. And they're asking you questions to particularly drive a series of answers from you that fits whatever their bigger story is. And it took me a long, long time to realize that and to be able to steer the questions and the conversation back to the messages that I wanted to give. And that really came from just the experience of doing it and stuffing up repeatedly and having horrendous sweats and panic attacks about the interactions and things. It's really hard. It's really hard putting yourself out there. I will say, I think one of the hardest things that I had to deal with through putting myself out there and doing all these conversations and, you know, being in newspaper articles and things is the responses that I got from within the science community were not always super supportive. So mm. I expected that there would be backlash from the, the general public, you know, that they would say it's Jurassic Park and, you know, you're playing God and all of that stuff. But I didn't expect that in my realm of people that people would come up to me and say, oh, did you say this ridiculous thing in a newspaper article? I think in the Herald Sun, right? So we, like, I was quoted as saying my next project was going to be engineering pterodactyl wings onto a mouse, right? And then, you know, <laughs> I, I was surprised that I even had to say to my colleague, like, obviously I didn't say that. And, you know, like, what what on earth would the point of that be? <laughs> but it is, it was really surprising to me that a lot of people close in my field found the, the, the fact that I was doing so much science communication and talking about it really confronting, I guess, mm. about this particular topic. But I really care about conservation biology and about the platforms that we need to have to save our planet from a complete biodiversity crash crisis where the whole planet implodes. I really mm. care about it. And I really care about the science comms around that. So anyway, it's obviously it has paid off for me. So it has been a, a success, but it is it has been a very interesting road. Why do you think they do find uh, all the psychom stuff so confronting? The fact that you're doing it and making it work? I'm, I'm not sure. I don't know whether it's because it is perceived as being a very easy topic to do science comms about. Um, you know, and, and I admit it is like people are immediately drawn to this topic. And I think like you, you, everybody has an opinion. So it's very easy to engage somebody in a conversation about this. It's not like saying, you know, I'm working on endothelial cell migration through blah, 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 blah. And then people are like, oh, I've got nothing to comment on that. You're like, oh, I'm going to bring back the thylacine. And then they immediately go like, oh my God, that's amazing. Or you're going to ruin the planet. That's Jurassic Park. So I think it's very easy for anybody with any level of background knowledge in this space to have a, a feeling and a comment. Mm around what that is. That said, I have done an enormous amount of science communication around endocrine disruptors and impacts on reproductive health. That's my other part. That was what really, you know, drove the, the lab forward as while this was my side hustle was all my sort of much more medically oriented <laughs> research. And even that I got out and I would talk in the 
newspapers and the press about the dangers of these chemicals. And, you know, that's much dry uh, topic than working on thylacine de extinction. But I was able to get real traction and real big communication stories around that. I've done TV documentaries on that and all sorts of stuff uh, on a much dry topic. So I do believe that, yes, there is some aspect to, you know, it helps to have a sexy topic or something that people have a hook for that they can get dragged in on. But I do believe if you're genuinely passionate about Mm. any topic that you work on and you can contextualize that for why the public should care, that you can get that traction as well. It is harder. It's, I will freely admit, it's very easy to get people excited about the Tassie Tiger, but it's possible and I've done it for different topics. So you mentioned you had no media training when you started. Was that by choice or was there none available? Yeah, none available. And again, this was like 20 years ago, right? So I don't think universities were really that outward facing back then. And it has been a massive shift, which is really, really good. So I think, yeah, it was, it never, and I still to this day, through despite all the media that I've done, Never had a formal media training course. I learned just by doing. Well, I, I think that's it, right? The more reps you get, the better you're going to get at yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Would you recommend to the up-and-comers of today that they do go and get some media training? Yeah, I think it would have been enormously helpful. And I, you know, again, it's something I talk about whenever I talk about, you know, early career paths and talk to people about how to establish their research careers and stuff is I highly encourage that because I think I was very late to the game in realizing that there was always you know, a a motive and a story that the interviewer was was wanting to tell and that there are very easy ways to kind of shift that back into a space that you feel much more comfortable Mm. talking about. And, you know, having the confidence to say, you know, that that's not the right way to frame the question or, you know, I think doing that is only through having the training, feeling that confidence and, you know, repeatedly doing it. And that's why I think getting engaged as early as possible in science comms is a great thing to do because you just start to build that confidence, I think. Let's talk a bit about failure for a moment because you mentioned the cold sweats. Oh, know, yeah. Maybe up all night after an interview that yeah. went a little bit awry. You're still here. Things are going great. So yeah. nothing happened that was that bad. It totally derailed your career, right? You know, I've had a few instances in my career where it was really tough to come back from. So really? Was, yeah. You know, so there, there have been ones where you just go, oh, God, that really shake your confidence. So I was okay. at a major conference in the United States talking about my research and uh, a very senior scientist got up and critiqued me in the question time. And it was a really, you know, just basically said that the study was was null and void and that I couldn't answer the questions that I said I was. And I was very junior at the time. I would have been in, you know, my first three years out from a postdoc. It was my first really big talk on a big international stage. And, you know, I finally was able to, you know, really argue my point and I thought really articulate clearly where I was coming from and, you know, why... I had addressed the things the way that I had and they sat down and I was thinking, oh, thank God. And then the next person got up to ask a question and said, I just really want to reiterate some of the points of the, oh, the first person. And it was oh. just a nightmare. And then after it, you know, t- 20 people came up from you I'd never met before from the audience just going, oh my God, they didn't understand at all. They were completely wrong, which they were. But, you know, when you're the junior person mm. and there's two very senior people, it just really, really, really rattled my confidence. And so it took me a long time to come back from that. But I do think... You know, I'm not a believer of whatever doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I think some things just are really difficult to deal with. But it did help me, you know, I, I think I had to feel much more confident. If there was to happen today, I think I would have a, you know, a, just a much more matter-of-fact way of, of actually saying, actually, I think you're wrong, blah, 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 blah. But back then, you know, I would never have dreamt of saying it, especially to somebody who's much more senior than me. So a lot of it just comes from experience and doing it. But, yeah, I, I think everybody in, in their careers is going to have major setbacks. You know, even just a few weeks ago, I got my critiques back on my failed ARC grant and I'm reading it, you know, and it's just all of those things Mm. are really, really hard. And people say to me all the time, you know, like, oh, it's great. You've got all this funding and you're so successful. You mustn't worry about any of those things anymore. And I'm like, no, it's still the same day to day. You know, you still put your projects out there. It's still really hard to read and digest that feedback and not feel upset. I think a lot of things we get told in science all the time is don't take it personally, but Mm. we're so passionate about the topics that we work on. It's such a fundamental part of who we are. When you write a grant, when you put in papers, when you do this, when you're giving a talk, there's so much of who you are intrinsically as a person in any of those forums that it's impossible. So I always say, that's crazy when people say, don't take it personally. Of course you take it personally. It's completely normal to take all of these things personally. I think you just have to learn how you reconcile that in your own life and deal with that. But it is a very personal thing. There's so much I love in what you just said. 
I'm sorry you had to deal with that. That sounds like a harrowing experience, but look at you now. And I think if you're listening to this podcast and you're a little bit earlier in your career than Andrew is, he he gets negative criticism as well. You know, he gets rejections. It doesn't matter yeah. what stage of your career you're in, things are going to go badly. And I know there are a lot of younger researchers who look at, you know, the folks that are more senior and they could be a little bit intimidated, but everyone's human. Everyone's on their own journey. Yep. And I think the fact that you had this harrowing experience when you were younger and all those people came up to you afterwards, what a, what a great confidence boost because we've all been giving talks or you know going up for an opportunity and you just feel absolutely shredded. It feels yeah. like I must be the biggest failure on yeah. it, but that's, that's not the case. Yeah. Not at all. Your feelings do not represent the reality, yep. uh, the objective reality of the situation. I went home after the ARC grant funding came out and I was sitting on the couch with my partner and just going, you know, I, I feel like a complete failure. You know? oh. <laughs> so it's just, it still is. Like, honestly, I had like, and I'm, I'm always going, I give myself 24 hours that I'm going to sook for. Sure. And then I have to go, okay, now you've got to, you know, figure out where did they, what didn't they understand? How are you going to redo it for next time? Bounce back. Because that is part of our career, but it still is soul destroying. It's really mm. funny. That, you know, you read that stuff and you still go, oh, you know, it just is, it's hard. It's really hard, particularly because, you know, and I, I'm sure everybody listening is the same. You believe so much in the mission of what you're doing and, and the work that you're driving. It's hard when other people don't get that, you know, and have missed those, those key points. But then ultimately you have to go, well, I guess I just didn't communicate it clearly enough or that didn't come across and I have to think about how I'm going to address that. So yeah, it just is. Yeah. It's, it's just a, it's a hard slog. So have your sook for 24 hours. And then pick yourself up and try and learn from the experience. Yeah, you um, you really have to. And I know it sucks. <laughs> it does, <laughs> but, it does. But that is the the name of the game that is science that we're in is you just have to go, okay, all right, I have to pull myself back up and put myself back out there again. Okay, we've talked about engaging with your peers and uh, you know other folks in science who are skeptical, and we've talked about broad science communications and dissemination. But let's talk about, uh, I guess, community engagement. I saw that the uh, Colossal Biosciences CEO Ben Lamb had been down to Tasmania, and he's uh, working with the Dermot Valley Council. Yep. Um, are you involved in that kind of community engagement as well? Yeah, yeah, I was there with them okay. at that meeting. So we all went off together to talk about uh, just, you know, where the, the research is at and trying to hear from them what their any of their concerns were. And I think, you know, although we're a very long way off having a Tasmanian tiger that we're going to release across Tasmania, right, that's still a long way away. I think the importance of this was really engaging with the First Nations groups down there, with, you know, all of the stakeholders from that area that feel that they had a role to play in this. So there was people from forestry, from tourism, from the conservation networks, obviously, mm. uh, that all were really interested in what this would mean for Tasmania. And I think one of the things that Colossal does incredibly well is making sure that all those voices are heard early in the piece and that they're brought along for the journey. So we have six monthly meetings with the, the Dermot City Council to talk about just updates on the project and where things are going, just to make sure if there's any concerns or questions or people are starting to think, you know, about a potential problem down the track or, or things that might help uh, with the, the program that we have, getting it into schools. So there's lots of talks about education programs that can go out around this, resources that we can create for schools to start to understand more about conservation biology, genetics, genomics, genetic engineering, all of those things um, that, you know, that people are getting engaged. And I think it's a really smart and sensible thing to engage early and to make sure that all of those people feel really comfortable about what's happening. I also went to the Northern Territory and met with First Nations people up there. They have a very deep connection with the Tasmanian tiger. And I wanted to ask them, you know, how they felt about the research that we're doing and what do they think about, you know, resurrecting a thylacine or re-engineering a thylacine. And, you know, they, for them, it's a very, very deep part of their, their stories and the dream time. Um, there's many cave paintings of the thylacine up all over North of, of Australia. I think a lot of Australians even don't know the Tasmanian tiger is not Tasmanian. It was all over Australia. Mm. It just went extinct on the mainland a, a few thousand years ago and only persisted in Tasmania when we got here. 
but it was all over mainland uh, prior to European settlement of of Australia. But the First Nations people have a very deep connection with the the Tasmanian tiger because it was their native dog. And many accounts suggest it may have been a good companion animal, lots of really cool stuff about it. But anyway, uh, it was really interesting, like just talking with them and engaging with them because they said, you know, that the spirit of the Tasmanian tiger is still alive. It's painted on their rock art. It's part of all their storylines and storytelling. It's such a fundamental part of their culture that to them, it never left. So they were like, you know, whether it's physically here or not is kind of, you know, not, not as important to them as that its spirit lives on in the rock art, in the storytelling, and is a fundamental part of their culture. So the, for wow. them, it was kind of like, meh, you know, like, sure, if it's around again, great. But, you know, for us, it's really about the, the place that it plays in our stories. And I loved that. I was like, that was really incredible. And then it was a, an amazing interaction because they said, you know, we, we have such a deep connection with the Tasmanian tiger, but we find that because they're in mainland Australia, that people, other people just don't really have that connection. And they said they felt really connected to the research and mm. what we're doing because we were a, another community of people that had this deep connection to the thylacine. And they were saying, you know, there's not a day in our lives that we don't talk about and think about the thylacine. And I'm like, yeah, I'm the same. Like, that's me. Aww. And they're like, we love that. Like, it was this really, it was, it was a great thing. But I love, you know, and again, I'm committed with them to continue to engage with them as we go through this process and see, you know, what they feel is the right way to, 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 to use this technology, I guess thoughtfully in our landscape. That's such a beautiful story. How did you prepare for these community engagements? It was, it was difficult, right? Because um, it's hard to bridge the gap, the knowledge gap of really trying to um, fundamentally explain what we're doing with this project. But fortunately, you know, I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of public and community engagement that I, I do have ways of explaining the technology that I think are very accessible to, to anybody. But I think really thinking about how I communicate that and really, again, focusing on the, the big objectives of this work. So it's not about, you know, we are genetically engineering stem cells that we're then going to use, you know, advanced cloning technologies and assistive reproductive techniques. It's more about going, these animals played a fundamental part in the ecosystem. They were part of the natural balance that is the environment. And that, you know, when we hunted them to extinction, when European settlers came in and changed that landscape, it's really thrown everything out of balance. And that's something that's a very deep and fundamental part of their culture and their stories too, mm. is that real acting in harmony with the, with the environment around them. And so I think coming from that perspective and they can see that, that that's what the end goal is, is restoring that, that balance with nature again. They really love that side of it. So I think it's, it's, it's a good thing. Beautiful. I love that. If I think about everything we've talked about today, the word connection is coming to mind. You're forming partnerships, you're building relationships, you're perhaps making friendships along the way. This is a huge mission and yes, you are the key person of influence, but it sounds like you've got a tremendous team around you every step of the way. Yep. Now, if I look at a lot of research organizations, they tend to revolve around one person, maybe two people. What would you say to the labs, uh, centers, institutes are out there in terms of broadening, I, I guess, the megaphone so they have more yeah. people with a voice. Yeah, you know, I do think it's really super important. And I think there are different personalities, obviously, across science. And I think some people are much more likely to go out and take the opportunities to do broader communications, to drive greater connections with other people than others. Some people are much more intrinsic. And that's something I think you have to recognize as a, as a group leader or as you set up your own research, mm. where, what kind of a, a scientist you're going to be and how you're going to foster that to work for your particular group. What I would encourage people to do, though, is the more outreach, the more outward facing you are, the more of that speaking and drawing those connections that you can possibly make. Uh, the, the better your career is. And especially the friendships which you hit on before. Like, I feel like I have amazing friendships through all mm. of my science connection. It's funny, you know, because we're always talking about work-life balance and I go, you know, so much of my life is tied up in my work. Yeah, it, It's impossible to disentangle the two. Like I, I really love my job and lots of the people that I interact with and things that I genuinely love and have amazing friendships with are part of my work life. So I feel like it's, you know, for, for science, your work-life balance comes around how you orchestrate your network and things around you. I also have lots of friends who are not in science as well, just to clarify for everybody. I'm not weird. <laughs> but a lot of my friends come from those science interactions. And even now with the team in Colossal, I have great friendships over there. You know, like it's it's really incredible just meeting and finding and connecting all of those mm. people. But everywhere you make these connections, I think it leads to positive outcomes. And so just really trying to 
broaden that voice, do more outward facing stuff, really trying to engage with a broader audience, ultimately really helps you build your research, build your momentum. Any of those activities are helpful. Beautiful. I think that's a, a really lovely note to end on. I think people are generally aware of some of the more concrete benefits that can come from research, communication and engagement, but you never quite know what opportunities are around the corner. I think your story really shows that. Yeah. So, I, you know, just, just do it. If you have just opportunities, just absolutely do it. And don't be frightened of it. I think you'll make mistakes. I made God knows how many mistakes uh, during the process, but just doing it, getting yourself out there, getting better at it, do some media training. Mm. But take any opportunity you can to communicate is is always valuable. Beautiful. So listeners, if you have even 10% of the passion that Andrew does, get out there and start engaging with the public. Don't be afraid if there's criticism. I think the way you described how you handle it is fantastic. Tackle it head on, understand the audience, understand their concerns and use examples and I guess Talk about what is at stake and what your research can do in ways that they can understand the yep. impact. That was great. Professor yeah. Andrew Pask, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Amplifying Research. I'm your host, Chris Parlow. Thanks again to Professor Andrew Pask for all his amazing wisdom. I'm going to include a link to the Tiger Lab website in the show notes if you'd like to find out more about his team's amazing work. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on LinkedIn or via my website, amplifyingresearch.com. I'd like to acknowledge that I produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. I pay my respect to their elders, past and present. Big thank you to Maya Tarrell and Michelle Joy for being consulting producers on this show. Our theme song is by Labu Clay, and our interstitial music is by Blue Steel, both courtesy of Epidemic Sound. Stay tuned for another episode next week. For the first 12 episodes, I'm going to be releasing the show weekly and then switching to every other week as I have quite a few other exciting things I'm going to be developing alongside this show. Thanks for listening, friends, and as always, stay curious.